0: This free education is provided by and for North Memorial Health Ambulance Service for the sole purpose of educating its clinical team members. It does not constitute online medical control or medical advice. And now, without further ado, welcome to NorthCast. Hi everybody and welcome to a special edition of northcast where we're still desperately seeking a name and introductory tune i am your hostess with the least mostest alex trembly and i am here today with zach finn uh,
1: associate medical director here at north happy to be back again Today, we have a couple people from our community paramedic program here to chat with us about naloxone grant that they've been working on and some of the the work they've been doing with help out with the opioid epidemic here in Minnesota.
0: Terrific supervisors here from the community paramedic program, Clara and John. So Clara, I'm going to have you go first alphabetically, introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about yourself, and then John, the man who needs no introduction, will have to provide a 30-ish second introduction. So go ahead,
2: Clara.
3: My name is Clara Kessel. I am the community paramedic supervisor for our greater Minnesota areas and hopefully Wisconsin in the near future. Future?
2: And I'm John Riley, the Community Paramedic Supervisor, focusing on the Metro region. Long-time paramedic here in North and Happy to be here today.
0: I, uh, I said before the recording started that in, since I started here in 2009, there has never been a North Memorial without a John Riley, and I don't know that that's untrue. So, well, let's tee it up here. So, you guys in your community paramedic work do a lot of grant-funded work, which I think is very important. It's a, a terrific use of of tax dollars in this state, is to find ways to to make people happier, healthier, and out of the hospital. And one of the new ones, the one that kind of started here in 2021, and now is going to move into the 2022 year, is your work with the Minnesota Department of Health a, a, attacking or addressing the opioid crisis here in Minnesota. So, Clara or John, can you guys just take us through kind of what this grant covers and, and what your goal is? Sure. What the grant presently
3: covers is identifying people who have had an opioid overdose, either through the 911 system um, as a referral into the community paramedic program or from the ED or from the floor at the hospital. What we do then is once those people are identified, we work to connect with them and their families specifically to go out and provide them with NARCAM education and administration. We also provide them with naloxone at that time and help them identify the different ways in which they can see an opioid overdose and what the next best steps are. In addition to that, we also work with the Minnesota recovery folk and work to connect them in order to hopefully get them into recovery when they're ready for it.
1: So, Claire, I think we've heard a little bit throughout the news if you've turned on the radio or opened up a newspaper or looked at your whatever app is on your phone these days, you've heard about the opioid epidemic and everyone knows that it's a problem throughout the states, but as somebody who's been on the ground and seen this firsthand, tell me a little bit about your experience and why you think this is such an important topic for us to be addressing.
3: I think as a provider, we seen a huge increase in opioid overdoses over the last several years. Part of that could be due to the mental health, part of it could be due to COVID. Whatever the rationale behind that is, we are seeing more overdoses. We're also seeing more overdoses that where the opioid's been cut with something else such as fentanyl. And so people who would normally utilize an opioid are having much more dire consequences from it because of what it's been cut with. And I think due to the number of people who are overdosing and are having negative outcomes even those that aren't fatal, has really pushed us to recognize as a healthcare system that we need to start addressing this at the very ground level.
0: Let's talk about the initial step, identifying these customers and referring them. So what are the criteria, John, by which a patient meets inclusion into this program?
2: So pretty much anyone with any kind of a history of opiate use or abuse when it comes to our EMS referrals. We look for anyone who has had Narcan, whether that be by the EMS team or the the first responders prior to their arrival. Whether they've been transported to the hospital or not, obviously, if they're still alive and breathing when, when they leave that scene, we would welcome a referral for anyone of that nature that we would then reach out to, contact, Try to see if they'd be open to a visit from us. Part of our goal is to meet them where they are, their wish for recovery. Our partner, the Minnesota Recovery Services, they provide peer specialists who will talk with the individual, do a visit with them, and will decipher where they are in that process. It's really important to them and to us that we don't scare people away by going in and saying, you have to quit what you're doing. It's more about what can we do for you? How can we keep you safe? If you are feeling like you want to get into a recovery system, we can help you with that. Otherwise, these peer counselors who have all been there themselves, peer counselors that they use at Minnesota Recovery are recovered addicts themselves. So they understand they've been homeless. They've gone down that road. They've faced a lot of despair in their lives, so they're able to communicate and connect with the individual that we're, that's being referred to us in a way that hopefully makes them feel more comfortable and safe and having that discussion.
0: And so that's what we call a warm handoff, right? That's uh, the idea of when somebody is still post overdose and maybe has that like immediate trauma, that that's the best time to try and see how we can be supportive of them. Is that correct?
2: Correct. Yeah. Oftentimes people that have had an experience, maybe a a near death experience with an opiate, it starts to get them thinking about what's their next step? Where do they want to be A year from now, six months from now, as we all know, sometimes that's that first step towards considering something. And if you catch them right at that moment or soon after that moment you probably have a better chance of helping to convince them that there are options for them that they can pursue. And Minnesota Recovery and our group tries to help give them the resources they're ready to accept. That's awesome.
0: So Minnesota is one of the few states where ER doctors can actually prescribe a a day's worth of Suboxone so they go through a special training on the way out of the ER. So if somebody has a non-fatal overdose that theoretically one of the things that they can do is have a 24 to 48 hour prescription of Suboxone to get them through that next step. But the idea of a warm handoff and and finding somebody that's really a peer for support is not something that the EDs are currently set to offer as much. Is that fair to say?
1: I think that's fair to say. I think just to clarify a little bit, so the rules have actually changed to make it easier for people to get started on their medication-assisted therapy for overdose now. And so even nationwide, ER docs don't need to go through special training. We need to apply for a little bit of a waiver, but we can prescribe Suboxone, Buprenorphine pretty easily from the ER to start the process. And so you're right. It's a little bit different from a warm handoff in that you know, sometimes we like to start this process that people who are willing to, they have their overdose, they're in the ER, already been started on treatment potentially, and those are the people that might be the most willing to, to engage in further their care after their initial ER visit. And sometimes it's different from what we're doing with the community paradigm program that John and Clara and the team are really doing here. Now, they're t- often talking about people who don't necessarily get treatment or start on treatment, but people who might be interested in finding a way to stop or, or even just making sure that if they can't stop, that they're not going to have worsening outcomes or helping family members navigate that process, too, who are watching this
2: event happen. So, John, Clara, have you seen a number of patients? Do you know how many you've seen? I can't tell you any, We are using one of our Princeton CP is actually doing a lot of the calling on this and the evaluation of the referrals as they come in. Uh, Maria, she's our point person there in Princeton. She took on that role after Amy left because Amy was doing that prior to that. If somebody's homeless, it doesn't eliminate them from our list. We will find a way to connect with them where they are, if it's under a bridge in a tent or at a caribou coffee shop. We definitely still will connect with people who don't have a residence. And that's how you eliminate the stigma, to Clara's point.
0: The COVID-19 pandemic certainly seems to have echoed and increased some of the focus on people being stuck at home and, and maybe medicating themselves to get through what has been kind of a bleak time in, in our existence here in, in the United States. But I think that the other challenge the other things substance abuse alone is incredibly problematic it's a clinical disorder that needs to be treated clinically it's not some behavioral thing it's addiction is real and and things like this there's two hundred and fifty seven thousand homeless people in the United States that have already been diagnosed with severe mental illness 38% of all homeless people in the United States state that they became homeless due to an addiction to drugs or alcohol so what we're trying to do the importance of this early intervention is to stop the cascade down the mountain. Am I understanding that pretty well? 100%. Dr. Finn, you have been really actively interested in in kind of what's happening here on the ground with opiates and how we're addressing opiates. Uh, what does the data show?
1: Yeah, so the numbers throughout Minnesota for opioid-related deaths and overdoses have been drastically increasing uh, throughout the past few years. And just even this year, up through about October, in Hennepin County alone, so just one county in Minnesota, that have been over 250 deaths related to opioids by themselves. And that's not b- including people who Who didn't die? That's not including Ramsey County or any other county. That's just one small county here in Minnesota. Well, not a small county, but a big county, but still it's one county. And that's a lot of deaths. And if we can even prevent a fraction of that, that could be countless lives saved. And unfortunately, we've seen these numbers increasing and increasing. And the other thing we're seeing is the the type of opiates are drastically changing. I think it's people, when people think of the opioid crisis, I think a lot of people still go towards the prescription drugs, the Percocets, the oxycodone, the Vicodin. And that's interestingly not what people are dying from as much anymore. People are still, of course, dying from them, but it's a way lower rate. People are now dying a lot from fentanyl overdoses or some of these other synthetic opioid medications or or drugs. And even people who are trying to buy like oxycodones on the streets are often those are often getting laced with synthetic opioids like fentanyl. And people who think they're taking a small dose are end up overdosing, even if that wasn't their intent, because they don't know what's truly in there.
0: That's a really good point, too, is one of the things I keep hearing, like when I listen to NPR and things is people talking about how their addictions start with a prescription drug. They broke their leg. They got 10 days of Percocet. They d- developed a habit for it, essentially. And their doctor eventually cut them off. And heroin is cheaper to get on the street, which, as we know now, a lot of heroin in Hennepin County is actually synthetic opiates that are they're labeled as heroin. And to put that 250 opiate deaths into perspective, since the start of COVID reporting, Hennepin County's only had 2,000 COVID deaths compared to 250 opiate deaths. 250 deaths does not sound like a lot, but it's a big chunk chunk. chunk and it's an addressable chunk, right? When you make seatbelt laws, you make seatbelt laws because a ton of people died without seatbelts. So now we're kind of looking at the same thing.
3: I was just thinking, you know, you brought up something that really important to recognize and call out. And I'm not sure exactly how to call it out in this specific format. But a lot of times people who either have mental health or substance use disorder concerns, they are embarrassed about it or don't see it in the same way because of all the stigma that goes both with mental health and substance use disorder. And so it's really important, I think, when we engage with them um, from a paramedic level, from a community paramedic level, that we do address that it is no different than being diabetic or having heart disease and trying to take some of that stigma out of it.
1: One thing that I think is so important about us and who work pre-hospital and work in the emergency situation here is that you know there are so many of these people who use opioids chronically, whether prescribed or illicitly and we often don't get to encounter them we don't know about them we don't see them at all and so sometimes when they have this overdose episode happen whether they wake up with police around them after getting narcan they wake up in the ambulance they wake up in the er whatever does that happen that might be our one and only chance to intervene and get them dialed in with, with a way to either provide them with narcan or to get them outpatient resources or to get them counseling or a friend that they can talk to that's been through this situation and that's why i think what we're doing here what you guys are doing out there in the community is so significantly important in preventing them from going down the pathway where they've hit rock bottom but they could always go lower to they've hit rock bottom and maybe there's a chance for them to get better and john you know so often i'll see these people in the er they'll come through the er after getting reversed in the field and they'll be having some mild withdrawal symptoms they're feeling terrible and say i i do give them a referral to the community paramedic program and you guys go out to see one of them can you talk to us a little bit about what that looks like when you guys see them in their own home
2: sure so when we get a referral, first of all, that referral is sent to our program coordinator and then then reach out to the individual. And sometimes it can take multiple calls to actually connect. It's always important for us to have good contact information. Sometimes we get those referrals, and we find that there's nothing we can do because we can't get in contact with the individual. Being homeless, that certainly makes adds challenges to that whole process. But once they do make connection, we're lucky enough to have program coordinators who do a really good job of, talking to people and talking to them in a way that makes them feel like they're not being judged in that situation, that that this is a potential source of help for them, again, at whatever level that they're at. So referrals made, program coordinator reaches out, they get an agreement for us to come see the individual. When the community paramedic arrives, we start out in the typical way using aid to introduce ourselves. We make sure that uh, we're building a trust with the individual as quickly as we can, just like we do in the the 911 system. Once we've established that, once we've gotten to a position of comfort, we go on to do a physical assessment. We perform vital signs and, you know, have some discussions about what issues or concerns they have. Establishing that rapport is very important. Some of the things that we do specifically towards the substance issue, we talk to them about, try to establish, again, where they are in their thought process about their issues with substance. We offer to introduce them to Minnesota Recovery Connection, explain to them what that program's about, talk to them about peer-to-peer counseling. We bring along with us a Narcan kit and, and then discuss the education on how they would use that Narcan kit if they were to need it or how their family member or friends would use that. It's important for us when we're talking with the individual to ask them if there's somebody that they trust or somebody who would be likely to be near them if they had an overdose at all so that we can include that individual in the education process. we'll back up just a little bit sometimes sometimes we get a referral and the person is not ready to see us but a family member may be the one that reached out to us or a friend may have reached out to us said I'm really concerned about Clara. I think she really needs some help. We're worried that someday, She's not going to come back from one of these. And I'm really worried about Clara. Yeah, me too. Uh, So in a situation like that, we'll offer that family member or that friend, bring Narcan kit to them and give them education. On how to use that Narcan kit. We have to be sensitive to HIPAA protected stuff, and that we're not talking to them about their friend or loved ones, but we are saying, well, if you have concerns, here's one thing we can do to try to help make you feel a little more comfortable about your friend or loved one. Going back to the CP visit with the individual, we do some asking about their social issues. Do they have food security? Do, do they have an issue with financial? Is, are they secure in their home? And will they need something further in that regard? You touched on something that I think is really important to highlight here, how there are certain stages
1: of change that people go through. It's called the stages of change. And there are people that, go, that are in the pre-contemplation stage, which is kind of like when they're in the denial, all the way up through their termination of whatever habit is or their maintenance of termination of the habit. And I think traditionally, we are taught that when people are in the pre-contemplation stage, they don't want to hear what we have to say. They don't want any of our input. And usually that's that we say stop, back off, we're not going to be have much assistance here. But I love that it's almost a paradigm shift what you guys are doing here, that even if they're in that pre-contemplation stage, we've made that connection point, but then we're also looking at other ways to help them, even if it's not directly interacting with that person, whether it's Narcan training to family members or friends in the parent groups, so that they can help. And putting that bug in someone's ear can make a huge difference and then providing for the safety otherwise. So we're not just, even if we can't directly affect them right now in the stages of change, I love that what you guys are doing still
2: is helping, to, regardless of where they are in that stage of change. We, we look at that as planting a seed as well. you know. So maybe they're not ready now, but maybe the fourth or the fifth time a referral comes in for that same individual, maybe they've started to shift or maybe they're tired of that lifestyle that they've been presenting, or maybe one of their friends or family has gotten to them. We like to make sure that we remain available. They have contact information for us. They have contact information for Minnesota recovery. And we tell them outright, yeah, if there's something we can do for you moving forward here, please reach out to us. And then we back that up by reaching out. and We ask permission. Can we give you a call next week? Can we give you a call in two weeks? Just see how things are going, see if anything's come up that you need. See if you need more Narcan. Be sure to get that back out to you. Try to take care of any needs we can help in whatever process you're going through right now. Claire, how
0: often when you visit these customers, do you find concomitant needs? Like maybe they have a pressure ulcer or maybe, you know, food insecurity, I know is a big thing. It's a thing that we really, really think about a lot here. Food is medicine in, in a number of ways. But how often do you guys find other needs when? out and about, Claire?
3: I would say it happens more frequently than not. The needs are vastly different. I think one of the underlying things that I've seen, and John can speak to this as well, is there's a lack of social support. They don't have that community support around them. Because of that, they're falling through gaps in different ways, whether it's social determinants of health or their actual health care. And again, mental health is a huge component. Um, Even when people do Want mental health services, it's often three to six months out before they can see somebody. That's not helpful when somebody's in crisis.
2: I think that's an important aspect of it when you talk about their lack of social support can often come because friends and family are frustrated. They've, they've tried over and over again. It's a loved one that they want to support, but at some point in time, they, they say, I, I don't know what else to do, and it hurts too much to continue to see you go down this path, and therefore I'm disconnecting from you. Claire, I would like to
0: remind you this is an audio-based education format and your nodding is not helping. John, you said absolutely. How many people can you help in this process? You know, because I think when we think of like normal CP visits, we're very limited into who we can and cannot enroll, right? There's some not so specific limitations, but if they're in Hennepin's care system, they're going to probably see a Hennepin community paramedic. This is different, right? I
3: think it's pretty much been we need to reach these people. We need to be as creative and inventive as we can in reaching these people and helping. Helping as many as possible. And I just wanted to touch on the fact that, you know, has been discussed, although it's not something we're actively doing yet, is looking at the fentanyl testing kit so that if somebody is utilizing, they can actually use a fentanyl testing kit to see if what they're using has been laced and would then potentially have a more fatal or negative outcome.
2: That's really cool. In answer to your question of that grant that we've been given is a set amount of money that basically they said, make an impact. What can you do to Help these people that we're seeing this opiate crisis with addiction. So we strive to see as many as we can. One thing we're finding is it's been difficult to get hold of all of the referrals that we have gotten. We still have plenty of room to take a lot more referrals because connecting with them is a very challenging thing. Again, for a lot of the reasons we described earlier, you know, they're homeless, contact information isn't good. They're not ready to talk to us. Those different things, we see a lot of that popping up. Again, we don't give up on them. We try to reach back out. As of this point in time, we have plenty of room to see a lot more and we hope to see a lot more. That grant is a fixed amount of money, and they say, here, do with it what you can. The opioid
0: epidemic is not going away. It seems like we're at the point it's it's probably going to get worse before it gets better in a lot of places, especially in rural America where drug use has gone way up since 2020 across the country, not just here in Minnesota, but across the country. If I'm a frontline paramedic and I have an opiate overdose I'm going to refer them to Clara and to John by hitting the opiate overdose referral button in the patient information section, filling out the worksheet, and then they'll take it from there. What kind of parting advice would you give to our frontline clinical team members? What kind of things would you want them to know most importantly about the work that we're doing with this opiate grant?
2: Uh, we would want them to know that they're an important part of what we're doing. We, we can reach out. We've got funding and a grant, to, but the only way we can help them is if we can find them. It's very important that in their day-to-day activities, and we're not just talking about only referring people that have been given Narcan. If they go out on a call and it has a relation to an addiction and they see things in there that uh, sort of ring a bell with them, raises a red flag, we want them to know that we're comfortable with that referral and vetting the referral after it gets to us. If we're able to do something about it, we will. One one thing we haven't talked about is that we have other community partners. The Brooklyn Park Police Department and us have, we've got a relationship where they're giving us referrals, social workers at the police department that are involved in this, and, and one detective that oversees that, Samantha Hanson. We're really active on that side of things as well. And the emergency rooms, uh, doctor, we also get referrals out of the hospital. And at times, we've hoped to, on occasion, be able to even come into the emergency room while they're still there, connect with them, especially if it looks like we may have a hard time connecting with them after they've left. A great opportunity for us is to be able to say, hey, we've got this person in here. We're going to be letting them go pretty soon. But would one of you mind coming over and talking to him, seeing if you can connect later with him? And John, how would the hospital get a hold if you guys know how if if we have some
1: nurses from the floor, docs from the floor, techs from the floor? coordinators, how would we get a hold of you guys if we're based in the hospital system?
2: Of course, the referral system. There is a referral for a community paramedic within that uh, EPIC system that they can always put in. But we would also encourage in the ED setting, you have somebody that you're concerned about. A social worker there or one of the staff members could certainly give our main number a call. Talk to, to Sherry Kaiser or Pachia Zong and ask them if there would be somebody available to come by or just have a discussion with them about what we might be able to do in the moment.
0: Clara, any parting thoughts? I think, again, the biggest part of this is
3: just recognizing that substance use disorder is it's a medical condition, just like anything else, and should be treated as such. And that we're going to be the biggest part of changing that stigma. Once we start changing how we look at it, that will trickle down And when it comes to the referrals themselves, we do super appreciate the referrals. We do follow up on them. The biggest thing that we need from everybody is the phone number. If we don't have a phone number or a way to connect with these people, we're not going to be able to reach them. And again, just thanking everybody for the work they do and recognizing how important this is. So again, the importance of just changing how we looked at it a little bit, like, okay, this individual doesn't want the help, but the family really does. We have to make this as accessible and easy for people to use with their loved ones.
0: Well, so, so let's wrap this up in a new segment that I'm going to call Finn's Findings that I didn't put in uh, preparing for at all. <laughs> no, don't do it, Alex. Yeah. Hey, so Zach, what is your big takeaway here today? What's the one thing that you would want to share back with the staff?
1: The community paramedic program here can make a difference for these people who overdosed don't if you're seeing them in the streets don't forget to hit the referral button update their patient information and give them a heads up that they might be getting a call from this crew to let them know that to, and hopefully to be thinking about being open to the input and the advice and the guidance that our team can provide. That's
0: awesome. As always, if you guys have any questions, I'd encourage you to reach out to the subject matter experts directly. That's Clara Kessel at Clara.Kessel at NorthMemorial.com or John Riley at John.Riley at NorthMemorial.com. You should always do it through your North email because if you spell it wrong, it'll fix it for you. As somebody who has a very complicated name, I, I appreciate North's email system. It's been an honor to be here with all of you, and to talk about really incredible work and and the direction that EMS has to go to survive in a in a competitive healthcare market that's not just about taking sick people to see the doctor.
1: Doctor Finn, you have any parting thoughts? I just want to reach out and say, John, Claire, thank you guys. You guys are doing some amazing work out there. This is this is the future. And you guys are kind of hitting it early on the ground, and I think the work you're doing will provide dividends and, and change people's lives going forward. So thank you. This is really important.
2: That's excellent. I'm going to say thanks for thanks for reaching out to us and giving us an opportunity to present this uh, this project and this our point of view on it. We certainly think it's important work and we're going to keep keep slugging away at it.
3: Thank you guys. I agree with John that this is important work and it's nice to have it highlighted a little bit so people have a better understanding of it.
2: So,
0: hey everybody, as always, we need a better name than Northcast or As Fast as Hospital. I, Alex, Which...
1: it's growing on me. As Fast as Hospital <laughs> might be the name of it if, if people, it might well... look weird, but it's good. <laughs>
0: And a jingle. I We found a really great open rights music library. That But if you are musically inclined and want to make a little 10-second intro outro for, for Northcast, or we would love to have you. As always, if you have ideas for an episode, if you want to be part of, of this, if you want to come and talk about something you're really passionate about, reach out to Dr. Finn and I directly through email, and we'll see you on the streets. Be safe. Be safe.
1: Waving, but you know, it almost works. I haven't even stopped for free, I'll keep that again.